0: Due to the graphic nature of this story, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of sex and suicide that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. The beautiful Soviet seductress is a well-known figure from femme fatale lore. She's the patriotic assassin, a Cold War spy who seduces and kills men for her country. But what if these women weren't as patriotic or as violent as popular culture would have you believe? What if becoming a spy simply meant a chance at a better life? Would you take it? Today, we'll learn the truth about the women who brought new meaning to the term foreign affairs. Picture a murderer, a gangster, a thief. Did you picture a woman? We didn't think so. Society associates men with dangerous crimes. But what happens when the perpetrator is female? Every Wednesday, we examine the psychology, motivations, and atrocities of female criminals. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson, and you're listening to Female Criminals, a Spotify original from Parcast. You can find episodes of Female Criminals and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. This week, we're continuing our five-part special on femme fatales. These women have a bad reputation, and sometimes they are indeed criminal. But if you've listened to this show, you know criminal is a relative term. Some of these women were criminalized simply because they were powerful. Others were only criminals if they ended up in the wrong country's court of law. Today, we'll cover the femme fatales of the KGB, sometimes known as sparrows, beautiful little birds that led their victims into a nest of espionage and scandal, often between two powerful rivals. We've got all that and more coming up. Stay with us. Following the devastation of World War II, the Soviet Union and the United States of America were the world's leading superpowers. But the two countries couldn't be more different. While the USSR championed communism, America celebrated capitalism. In a fight for ideological influence over the world, the rivals entered a tense era known as the Cold War. In their race for supremacy, both sides recognized the need for an all-powerful intelligence agency. So in 1947, the United States formed their Central Intelligence Agency, the CIA. Meanwhile, the Soviets had already gone through several iterations of an intelligence agency. In 1954, the infamous Komitet Gussudarstvieni Bezopasnosti, better known as the KGB, was formed. The body was a secret police with two objectives, to secure the state from dissenters and to ensure the rise of communism throughout the world. But the latter was an uphill battle, and the KGB knew they needed to give foreigners a reason to warm up to communism. And no one raised the temperature quite like a red-blooded woman. According to Jason Matthews, former CIA officer and author of Red Sparrow, the KGB trained operatives in the art of seduction at a secret facility known as State School 4. The existence of this school has never been confirmed. However, former agents have corroborated these rumors. They explained that the Charm School taught them to be more agreeable to foreigners. Allegedly, inside these walls, operatives learned the intricacies of Western etiquette and were advised on the best ways to dress and wear makeup. When these agents were women, they were known interchangeably as swallows and sparrows. And often, these beautiful birds were used to lure men of influence into compromising sexual positions. It's called sexpionage, and a typical assignment might be to lead Marx into their swallow's nest. A room bugged to collect compromising evidence known in Russian as kompromat, This was later used to either blackmail or manipulate their target into submission. Former KGB operative Yuri Krotkov substantiated these stories when he defected to the West. Much of the information we're discussing today is thanks to his sworn testimony. So before we dive into the story of the Swallows, let's learn about the man who brought them home to roost. Born in November of 1917, Yuri was bound for a life in the arts. His mother was an actress, and his father was a celebrated Soviet painter. Thanks to his family connections, he joined the prestigious Literary Institute of the Union of Soviet Writers, then landed a job at Moscow Radio in 1944. As a correspondent in the station's Anglo-American department, Yuri rubbed shoulders with the Western elite. And in April of 1945, the 28-year-old traveled alongside the wife of Winston Churchill as she toured the USSR. Needless to say, Soviet officials were eager to exploit his connections. So in 1946, they knocked on Yuri's door with an offer he couldn't refuse. Mostly because doing so would have likely marked the end of his career. he pledged allegiance to the Communist Party and began to spy on men and women of importance. But as Yuri's career as a playwright and screenwriter took off, the KGB noticed he was constantly surrounded by a bevy of beautiful women. So they ordered him to turn some of these enchanting beauties into operatives. According to Yuri, the agency recruited women as young as 19, Many were students at Moscow's Institute of Foreign Languages, and their knowledge of multiple languages made them valuable. Some were recruited as sleeper agents, while others were trained with specific missions in mind. And Yuri felt that most of these women were eager to serve their country. But not for the patriotic reasons you may suspect. You see, life in the Soviet Union was bleak. Those in power had a lot of it and those without lived in a constant state of fear. Working as a KGB swallow meant a chance at a better life, or even a chance to get out. Perhaps that's exactly why Valentina Reschetniek agreed to become a swallow. By all accounts, Valentina was primed for a life in sexpionage. Not only was she stunning, the blonde bombshell had an impressive resume, She attended the Institute of Foreign Languages and had a good handle on English. She also worked as a flight attendant, which meant she knew how to behave around powerful people. Needless to say, men were drawn to Valentina, so when Yuri asked to meet her in Moscow, she assumed he was just like all the rest, that he wanted to have sex with her. But to her surprise, Yuri offered her a job. The KGB had noticed her particular assets and believed she was the ideal candidate for sexpionage. Valentina jumped at the offer and began her training. Then in 1956, KGB officials put her skills to the test. That year, President Sukarno of Indonesia was visiting the USSR Seven years earlier, he had helped his country win independence from the Dutch Empire, and as the new leader of the largest country in Southeast Asia, Sukarno was under pressure to pick a side in the Cold War. While Sukarno fielded offers from the West, Klement Voroshilov, head of the USSR, was determined to win him over. So he invited the Indonesian president on a grand tour of the Soviet Union. When the president landed in Moscow, Voroshilov extended a warm welcome and offered Sukarno the services of his very own interpreter, Valentina Roshetnik. As she approached the president of Indonesia, Valentina understood the mission ahead of her. She was to make Sukarno amenable to communism by any means necessary. Valentina introduced herself and quickly proved herself indispensable to the dignitary. As they traveled together, the two grew very close. Before long, Sukarno wanted Valentina by his side at all times. At some point, they began a passionate affair, and Sukarno fell hopelessly in love. By the time his trip was up, Sukarno asked Valentina to be his wife, an offer she felt compelled to decline. But Sukarno was head over heels and continued to court Valentina for years. He made frequent trips to see her and even invited her to visit him in Indonesia. KGB officials were impressed with their little sparrow. Valentina had shown her valor in the bedroom and it seemed that Sukarno was warming up to communism. So they rewarded her with a brand new apartment. But the KGB weren't the only ones to notice Valentina's hard work. On the other side of the world, the CIA followed the affair with concern. They were confident that Valentina was a swallow who was either manipulating Sukarno through seduction or blackmailing him with compromat. The CIA feared that if Indonesia turned to communism, other countries would follow suit. As a result, The romance was a matter of national security. The CIA had to break them up. How, you ask? American agents worked with filmmakers to doctor a pornographic film, starring actors who posed as Sukarno and Valentina. As Sukarno was already a married man, the CIA hoped to tarnish his reputation by exposing him as a philanderer, caught in the arms of a KGB sparrow. For some reason, the CIA never released this tape, but they didn't have to. By the 1960s, KGB officials were tired of Sukarno's dithering. They wanted him to commit to communism once and for all. To get him on board, Soviet officers allegedly threatened to release a real tape of Sukarno, participating in an orgy. But to their dismay, Sukarno couldn't care less. He was a proponent of polygamy and a proud ladies' man. He allegedly even asked for extra copies of the tape. It was a crushing blow to the Soviet Union. They'd shown their true colors to Sukarno, and it backfired. Now, any chance at a partnership was gone. But while the plot to blackmail Sukarno came to an end, the sexpionage schemes of the KGB were only just beginning. Due to the devastation caused by World War II, plenty of other countries were still in turmoil. They were ripe for the picking, easy prey for the Soviets' finest little birds. Up next, an unkindness of ravens descend on the French embassy listeners, I am thrilled to tell you that this month marks a huge milestone for Parcast. It's the four year anniversary of another fantastic podcast I host called Serial Killers. If you haven't had a chance to dive into the stories and psychology behind the most nightmarish murderers of all time there's no better time than right now to start listening. Each week we enter the minds, the methods and the madness of the world's most sadistic serial killers from the son of Sam David Berkowitz and the co-ed killer Edmund Kemper, to Eileen Wardos, Ed Gein, and coming soon the Night Stalker Richard Ramirez. And this February, look out for our four-part special on Couples Who Kill, following the worst love has to offer. Their names may sound ordinary, but their atrocities are anything but. Trust me, you do not want to miss it. With hundreds of episodes available to binge and new ones released weekly, get to know the killers, crimes, and cases that forever changed the face of history. Follow the Spotify original from Parcast, Serial Killers. New episodes air every Monday and Thursday, free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the story. By the 1950s, the Soviet Union had made its way across Europe, establishing satellite states in numerous war-torn countries. This communist territory was known as the Eastern Bloc and reached as far as East Germany. With France just a country away, Soviet officials hoped that the struggling nation would become an ally Fortunately, they already had an inn. In 1956, 57-year-old Maurice de Jean was the French ambassador in Moscow. He was also a close confidant of Charles de Gaulle, who was projected to become the next president of France. Hoping to secure a relationship with France, the KGB conspired to turn Maurice into an agent of influence. Typically, this entailed sending a beautiful sparrow to lure him into a compromising position, a position the French ambassador often found himself in. Based on their surveillance, KGB operatives knew Maurice engaged in extramarital affairs, but because this operation was considered a top priority, it seems officials wanted a guarantee. So before entrapping Maurice, they set their sights on his wife, Marie-Claire de Jean. When we think of sexpionage, the image of a beautiful femme fatale comes to mind. However, in Cold War Russia, agents of seduction came in all shapes, sizes, and sexes. Male operatives were known as ravens. And in the summer of 1956, ravens circled above Marie-Claire. As the wife of the French ambassador, Marie-Claire lived a life of luxury in Moscow. She was invited to exclusive parties and traveled all over Europe. On one of her excursions abroad, Marie-Claire and two of her friends stopped at a gas station. Moments later, a car full of handsome men pulled up behind them, all of them ravens. One of them struck up a conversation with the woman then feigned surprise when he learned that they were all staying at the Intourist Hotel in Yalta. Of course, this was no coincidence. When the two groups arrived at the resort, they toured the coastal town together, having a great time. However, a raven named Mikhail Orloff wasn't there to see the sights. Late at night, Mikhail made his way into Marie Claire's hotel room on a mission to seduce. It's important to note that the infamous in-tourist hotel was run by the KGB, so Marie-Claire's room was bugged with a microphone. All Mikhail needed to do now was get her on tape in a compromising situation. But, faithful to her husband, Marie-Claire wasn't interested. When Mikhail bent in for a kiss, she declined his advances and asked him to leave. This may have been a shock to Mikhail. In addition to being a raven, he was a celebrated opera singer who was used to making women weak in the knees. Rejection wasn't something he was used to. Still, officials reasoned that the handsome playboy simply wasn't the right man for the job. Since Marie Claire descended from French elite, she likely preferred men of the same caliber. So, playwright and KGB recruiter Yuri Krotkov was brought off the sidelines. Yuri was both intelligent and well-respected, and though he wasn't trained in the art of seduction, the KGB believed he was their best bet. Later that summer, the same men from Yalta invited Marie Claire on a boating trip near the Kimki Reservoir. Intrigued by the excursion, she happily accepted and brought along two of her girlfriends. But when the women approached the vessel, they noticed an unfamiliar face. The handsome and debonair Yuri introduced himself and offered his guests a spread of wine and cheese. As the group sailed along the Moscow Canal, Yuri made his move. He turned his gaze towards the poised and elegant Marie Claire and asked her a string of questions. He wanted to know all about her experiences in the USSR. The ambassador's wife answered each question carefully, acutely aware that her responses reflected that of her husband and her country. But as the day went on, Yuri broke through her protective exterior. Eventually, he won her trust and friendship, and the two went on several more adventures together. But after a period of time, Yuri realized that his sexual relationship wasn't in the cards. He knew that Marie Claire only saw him as a friend, and that she wasn't going to be seduced by anyone. So the plot against the French ambassador's wife came to an end. However, the USSR was still determined to infiltrate the French embassy, somehow. Over the next two years, KGB officials made several attempts at obtaining compromat on the French ambassador and his colleagues. But the only operative who seemed to get anywhere was Yuri. He exploited his bond with Marie Claire and developed a friendship with her husband, and that allowed him to act as a stealthy wingman. In 1958, Yuri invited Maurice and Marie-Claire to a film screening of the Russian ballet Giselle. To help with translations, Yuri introduced the French ambassador to Lydia Kovinskaya. He said she was his assistant and an excellent interpreter. In reality, Lydia was a sparrow, tasked to sleep with the French ambassador. In her 30s, she was a little older than most other sparrows, But Lydia was captivating all the same. She spoke fluent French, understood the world of diplomacy, and was undeniably beautiful. She was also the former wife of a Soviet diplomat who had been based in France. But now she was single and living in Moscow, which might explain why the mother of two turned to sexpionage. She knew it was her best chance at a comfortable life. Whatever her motivation, Lydia played her part to perfection. During the screening, she leaned over and whispered seductively into Maurice's ear. Needless to say, the ambassador appreciated Lydia's translations very much, and it wasn't the last time they saw one another. One day, when Marie-Claire was away, Maurice and Lydia attended an art exhibit, Afterwards, Lydia asked the ambassador to drive her home. Then, when they reached her apartment, she invited him up for a drink. Once inside, she made her move and the two had sex. But surprisingly, KGB officials weren't thrilled by the news. Even though Lydia had successfully ensnared the French ambassador, things were suddenly more complicated. You see, the political landscape in France had changed. By the summer of 1958, Charles de Gaulle's accession to the presidency was no longer just a possibility, it was a sure thing. The KGB assumed Charles would eventually summon Maurice back to France to offer him a more powerful position. But until that happened, Soviet officials were hesitant to make their move. Still, they wanted Maurice to face a dilemma so grave that he needed help from his Soviet friends. This new plot called for a new player in the game, an angry husband. But Lydia was single, and Maurice knew that, so Yuri Krotkov was ordered to cast another woman in the starring role, and he already had the perfect sparrow in mind. Later that summer, while Marie Claire was vacationing in Belgium, Yuri introduced Maurice to 29-year-old Larissa Kronberg, a Soviet actress who had been in a handful of films. The French ambassador fell quickly under Larissa's spell, and the two began seeing each other regularly. One day, Larissa invited Maurice up to her apartment and seduced him into bed. When Larissa told her handlers the news, the USSR officials finally felt ready to make their move. The next time Larissa welcomed her lover to her apartment, it was bugged with a microphone. Unbeknownst to Maurice, KGB operatives were listening to their every move from the apartment next door. When the two began to make love, Larissa alerted her comrades by saying the code word, Kiev. Moments later, two men barged into the apartment, catching them in the act. One pretended to be Larissa's husband and started to attack Maurice. Meanwhile, Larissa let out a stream of crocodile tears and pleaded with her fake husband to stop. Maurice was the French ambassador, she exclaimed, a man of importance. When her husband heard this, he threatened to expose Maurice's adultery and bring scandal to the French embassy. It was a very convincing performance. Maurice was shaken. As far as he knew, Larissa's husband could easily end his career. So after leaving Larissa's apartment, the ambassador sought the advice of his most trusted friend in Moscow, a Soviet official named Gribanov, and he begged him to help keep the incident a secret. Unbeknownst to Maurice, however, Gribanov was a general in the KGB. He also happened to be behind the entire sexpionage scheme, which had gone exactly as planned. Lying through his teeth, Gribanov promised to help. In response, Maurice gratefully said, I would be indebted to you for anything you could do. KGB officials planned to call in a favor as soon as Maurice was offered a higher position in the French government. However, when Charles de Gaulle took office that winter, Maurice remained in Moscow so Soviet officials never went through with their plan. Still, during his time as the French ambassador, Maurice championed a stronger relationship between Russia and France. Make of that what you will. He certainly seemed to be a fan of strong relationships between the two countries, if only on a personal level, though perhaps less so after his entanglement with Larissa, which remained off the record for years. After she was done playing her part as a temptress, the beautiful Swallow went on to star in many films. But not everyone who fell prey to sexpionage got away as clean as Maurice and Larissa. With Maurice stuck in Moscow, it seems the KGB were keen on securing an ally within the French government. So in the early 1960s, a flock of sparrows and ravens attempted to compromise the French military attaché Louis Guibault and his wife. Sources differ on which of the Gibots were actually compromised, but it seems whoever it was, the KGB obtained some very graphic images. In the summer of 1963, they showed them to Louis and threatened to expose the French attaché if he didn't do as they ordered. However, when given the choice to betray his country or face public criticism, Louis chose neither. Instead, he took his own life. The turn of events sent a chill up Yuri Krotkov's spine. Though he understood the world of espionage was dangerous, he never imagined his work with the Sparrows would result in death. After 17 years as a KGB operative, Yuri knew he had to call it quits. In September of 1963, the 45-year-old defected and was granted asylum in the United Kingdom. While under the protection of British intelligence, he exposed the secrets of the KGB. Crucially, he confessed his role in multiple sexpionage schemes and revealed that Maurice de may have been compromised. Needless to say, Yuri's damning testimony got around. By the following year, France had a new ambassador in Moscow, but despite his scandalous fall from grace, Maurice never actually committed an act of treason, so he faced no legal consequences that we know of. Even still, the allegations were monumental. Intelligence agencies across the globe now knew how the KGB operated and it was downright dirty. Based on Yuri's testimony, it seemed like anyone in the Soviet Union could be a KGB operative, especially if that person was a beautiful woman. Up next, the KGB changes the game and captures an American Marine in their plot. Now, back to the story. In the 1980s, the Cold War was still raging. Though the Soviet Union succeeded in launching the first satellite into space, America landed a man on the moon. In the race for power and prestige, the Soviets were determined to prove their superiority as a communist country. Unsurprisingly, America was enemy number one. In fact, CIA operatives were rumored to be working inside the American embassy in Moscow, and the KGB were determined to find out who they were. Fortunately, foreign embassies in the USSR needed some Soviet manpower to run smoothly, specifically men and women who were, at the very least, bilingual. As we discussed earlier, the Institute of Foreign Languages prepared countless Soviet citizens for a life in foreign affairs. Many graduates went on to work inside foreign embassies, both abroad and within the USSR, and some were recruited by the KGB. One of their top operatives was Violetta Sena. Violetta was strikingly beautiful, The tall brunette would look at home on the cover of Vogue. Instead, she walked the halls of the Maurice Torres Institute of Foreign Languages, listening for whispers of dissent. Of course, being a snitch wasn't ideal. The job was nerve-wracking and terribly isolating. But what other choice did she have? Violetta was of Ukrainian Jewish descent, raised by a single mother. Growing up among the Soviet working class, she seemed destined for a bleak existence. But working for the KGB, anything was possible. You see, admittance into the school was highly competitive. Spots were typically reserved for the scions of the most powerful Soviet families. And while Violetta was a hard worker, she lacked the pedigree to gain entry. By chance, she landed a job as a laboratory assistant at the school and was eventually allowed to take night classes. After a year, she caught the attention of some very powerful people in the school's administration, who offered her the opportunity of a lifetime. She could become a full-time student if she snitched for them. They needed to know who of their students were trustworthy. Some of their students would go on to work as covert spies, so the administration needed to ensure their characters were sound before recommending them to the KGB. Of course, Violetta had the option to decline. She could refuse and pave her own path. But when given a chance at a better life, eventually it could lead to a job with good pay and benefits, it was a no-brainer. Violetta agreed to become their informant for the next four years. After graduating in 1982, Violetta was handpicked by the KGB to receive additional training at the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. But instead of brushing up on her diplomacy, Violetta learned how to heighten her social skills and appeal to foreigners. Then in May of 1985, the Sparrow was placed inside the American Embassy in Moscow, first as a receptionist and then as a secretary, Just as she had done at the Institute of Foreign Languages, she kept her eyes and ears open for valuable intel. Needless to say, she did more than just watch and listen. With her natural good looks, Violetta gained numerous American admirers. But no one was quite as mesmerized as U.S. Marine Sergeant Clayton Lone Tree. As an embassy security guard, Clayton knew the rules. Thanks to Yuri Krotkov's testimony, Americans knew that anyone in the Soviet Union could be a KGB spy. As such, fraternization with Soviet citizens was strictly forbidden. But despite knowing the risks of Soviet espionage, many U.S. Marines carried on love affairs with the locals. Meanwhile, their superiors understood that sometimes, boys will be boys, and looked the other way. Something the KGB perhaps understood when sending in their sparrows. This laissez-faire approach might also explain why Clayton felt above the law. Perhaps he felt he'd face no repercussions. So one evening in the fall of 1985, he set out to learn more about Violetta Sena. He trailed Violetta out of the embassy and followed her onto a busy train car. Once she sat down, he approached her and struck up a conversation. To his relief, Violetta was warm and receptive. However, Violetta was far from relaxed. When the Sparrow realized she'd been followed, she assumed the worst. She thought that Clayton was a CIA agent who'd made her, so she reported him to her handler. But she wasn't the only one to notice Clayton Lone Tree. KGB surveillance had already picked up on his odd behavior. Agents had seen that he often traveled alone when he wasn't supposed to, and that he took the train far past the permitted zones. He also didn't seem to engage with his American peers and often explored the city on his own. He was something of a lone wolf. To the KGB, this meant that Clayton was vulnerable to blackmail or perhaps even recruitment. So, Violetta was ordered to get close to the Marine and get him to open up. A loyal sparrow, Violetta accepted their mission. To help her succeed, she received additional training in the art of seduction. However, by the 1980s, the game of sexpionage had drastically changed. The KGB no longer explicitly ordered their sparrows to sleep with their targets. Why? Because, as they'd already learned through President Sukarno and General Gibo, blackmail through Compromat wasn't particularly successful. It often led to further discord or suicide by the targets. And the KGB desired neither. To them, the most valuable asset was a person who wanted to join the communist effort. Now instead of blackmail, the KGB sought to manipulate through emotion. They taught their operatives to foster strong friendships with only the possibility of sex. So when Clayton followed Violetta again the very next week, she welcomed his advances. Following instructions, Violetta's goal was to build a deep, lasting relationship. She returned every knowing look, warmly greeted him each morning, and even offered a shoulder to cry on when Clayton had a rough day. Over time, the two shared much about their lives, and in a surprising turn of events, they realized that they had a lot in common. They both came from broken homes, struggled with depression and loneliness, and had forged a life working for the government. Eventually, the friendship grew deeper and the two actually fell in love. By December of 1985, Violetta and Clayton began having sex. Clayton was beyond ecstatic to have found love and was eager to make things official. He wanted to marry Violetta and bring her back to America. Unfortunately, things were about to get very complicated. While her feelings for Clayton may have been real, Violetta was still a KGB informant. As such, she was required to report everything that went on between them. When KGB officials learned about Clayton's feelings, they made their next move. Of course, Violetta was crucial to the plan. She told Clayton that her dear Uncle Sasha wanted to meet the man she'd fallen for, saying that her uncle's approval meant the world to her. Clayton agreed to the meeting and went with his beloved. Like Violetta, Uncle Sasha wanted to establish a strong foundation with the Marine, so he was warm and boisterous. And as he plied Clayton with more wine, he played on Clayton's emotions. He asked about his life and his experiences in America. You see, Clayton wasn't just a U.S. Marine. He was also an American Indian who'd had a difficult life. And despite fighting for American freedom, he'd lived with racism all his life. Uncle Sasha offered his sympathies and boldly declared that racism didn't exist in the Soviet Union. Comrades were comrades, no matter the color of their skin it seems Uncle Sasha's words struck a chord. Clayton began to lower his guard, and the two men enjoyed a night of deep conversation. Before the couple left, Uncle Sasha gave them his blessing and invited them back. Clayton likely left thinking he'd cleared a major hurdle in his path to marrying Violetta. But during another visit, Uncle Sasha steered the conversation to the American embassy, Specifically, he wanted to know about the CIA operatives working in Moscow. Uncomfortable, Clayton asked why he was interested. Feigning innocence, Uncle Sasha explained that he wanted to help Violetta obtain a US visa to make their dreams a reality. He had a friend in the KGB who could make it happen, he said. He just needed something in return. At last, it was glaringly obvious. Clayton knew he was dealing with the KGB, but as he eyed Violetta, he refused to believe that his relationship was fake. He loved Violetta, and he knew that she loved him. So Clayton answered some of Uncle Sasha's questions. They were simple at first, but then the questions turned into requests. For three months, Clayton met with Uncle Sasha and committed a multitude of crimes including handing over blueprints to the American embassy and providing information on the identities of CIA agents. However, Clayton had his limits. When asked to handle a bug inside the American embassy, he refused. Even still, the questions and requests became more and more taxing. He felt the weight of his crimes, but he was in too deep to back out. If he did, he believed the KGB would expose him to his own government. Fortunately, in the spring of 1986, Clayton was transferred to the American Embassy in Vienna. After months of secret meetings with Uncle Sasha, Clayton was relieved to get some distance. But Sasha wasn't deterred, he made frequent trips to Vienna and pressured the Marine to provide more information. By now, Clayton was at his breaking point. Not only was he still entangled with the KGB, he was hundreds of miles from Violetta and she seemed hesitant to see him. That's likely because the KGB forbade it. It seems some officials suspected that their sparrow had formed genuine feelings for her target. So the couple were forced to communicate solely by mail. Then in December, Clayton's situation got even worse. Uncle Sasha was replaced by a top KGB official who went by the name George. Unlike Sasha, George was all business. During their first meeting, he ordered Clayton to produce more intel than he was comfortable with and declared that Clayton should defect to the USSR before the year was up. By the end of the meeting, Clayton was overwhelmed with guilt and anxiety. He loved Violetta, but if he defected, he would be a traitor to his country and he could never go home again. He knew that it had to end. Days later, he met with American intelligence officers and confessed everything. Unfortunately, Clayton wasn't celebrated for his honesty and he was prosecuted by the U.S. government. In the summer of 1987, he was found guilty of espionage and sentenced to 30 years behind bars. In the wake of the scandal, Violetta was thrust into the international spotlight. The story of the Sparrow and the Marine was headline news around the world and she was painted as a KGB temptress with loose values. Violetta was understandably distressed. She had done only what her country had asked of her, but her feelings for Clayton were real. And now he was paying for her misdeeds. Violetta sank into a deep depression and swore that she would suffer just as Clayton did. As he was stuck in a military prison cell, she locked herself in her bedroom and rarely came out. She also vowed to neither marry nor live a fulfilling life until Clayton's release. Fortunately, she didn't have to wait a lifetime. Sometime after his trial, officials recognized that Clayton's crimes had been blown out of proportion. Though he had knowingly committed espionage, his actions did minimal harm to national security. Through appeals, Clayton's sentence was reduced, and in 1996, Clayton was freed. Before his release, Violetta and Clayton rekindled their romance, and he proposed, she happily accepted. While we can't confirm if they ever made it down the aisle, it's cheering to think that at least one of the KGB sparrows found love. It's the kind of happy ending not often associated with spies, least of all the vicious seductresses of the KGB. But of course, the truth of the matter is that the Soviet sparrows weren't quite all that they've been painted in popular culture. Today, the story of the KGB sparrows lives on through the glamorized tropes in Hollywood action films and best-selling spy novels. And though these stories tend to veer far from the truth, these Soviet sparrows certainly proved that all is fair in love and war. Yes, they used their sexuality to tempt their targets into compromising positions, but it takes two to tango, right? As evidenced by the story of Clayton Lone Tree, some targets at least suspected when they were being played. It took him a while, but he found his way out of the trap eventually. But what happens when a honeypot's mark never realizes they've been duped? When the con is so complete that it lasts decades, spawns children, and eventually makes headlines? Well. That's a tale that requires an episode all its own. Thanks again for tuning in to Female Criminals. We'll be back next week with the next episode of our Femme Fatale series. We're delving into the truly fascinating story of Shi Pei Poo, a story of seduction, espionage, and mistaken identity. For more information on the birds of the KGB, amongst the many sources we used, we found the 1969 testimony of KGB defector Yuri Krotkov and the books KGB, The Secret Work of Soviet Secret Agents by John Barron and Dancing with the Devil by Rodney Barker, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Female Criminals and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Female Criminals is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Michael Motion, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Bruce Katovich. This episode of Female Criminals was written by Jane O, with writing assistance by Joel Callen, fact-checking by Adriana Romero, and research by Chelsea Wood. I'm Vanessa Richardson. Listeners, don't forget to check out the Spotify original from ParCast, Serial Killers. Every Monday and Thursday, take a deep dive into the minds and madness of history's most notorious murderers. You can binge hundreds of episodes, four years' worth, and catch new episodes weekly. Listen to Serial Killers free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.